February 12, 2009, Continental Connection Flight 3407 is nearing the end of its 53-minute flight from Newark, New Jersey to Buffalo, New York. The plane is carrying 45 passengers and four crew members and is five miles from the airport at 2,300 feet when something goes wrong. The control column on the Bombardier Dash 8 starts shaking as the aircraft loses speed. The captain pulls back on the column, but the plane, a twin turboprop, is out of control and plummets to the ground into a residential home below, the plane's nose seemingly pointed away from the airport. What happened in the final seconds of this 282-mile routine flight that caused this outcome? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, as always, uh, I'm Gus and I'm here with Chris. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. It's been a couple of weeks. We took a few weeks off. We've been looking into uh, to new incidents to cover. And uh, just as a refresher for everyone, this is a, a topic that I'm interested in. I have no uh, no background, never worked for the NTSB, <laughs> never did anything <laughs> like that. Not even I'm not even a pilot. I just find aviation fascinating. And I, I think when incidents occur, uh, I find it really interesting. And uh, I, I'm bringing Chris along, who really doesn't know anything about aviation, I'd say. Maybe you've, you've learned a little bit over I've our past little, episodes. But I like hearing Gus talk. Yeah, <laughs> good, good, because I like to talk, and this is something I like to talk about. And I uh, just want to give a quick reminder to everyone, uh, if you want, you can follow us on social, on Instagram and Twitter, at BlackBoxDownPod. We post a lot of images and supplemental material that maybe, you know, we can't adequately describe the audio. So if you wonder, like, oh, I wonder what they're talking about, you know, I probably posted a photo on Twitter or Instagram. So go give it a look. And I promise we're not going to spam your feed with a bunch of stuff on, on there. <laughs> okay, this, this incident at hand. There's going to be some explanation up top that we have to get through. So in the introduction, I called this Continental Connection Flight 3407. In reality, I should probably have called this Colgan Air Flight 3407. So Colgan Air Flight 3407, it was a passenger plane that was marketed as Continental Connection 3407 through a code share agreement. And you've probably heard these terms before. Mm. You probably maybe never really dug into it. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit here. A code share agreement? Have you ever heard code share? You've, you've traveled quite a bit. Have you ever heard the term code share? No. Okay. So a code share is like when one airline can offer a flight as another airline using a flight number. So like, let's say... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you might be on like American Airlines, but it's actually British Airways or something like that. Exactly. They have a code okay. share agreement. Like, And you hear about like, in, in that example you gave, you know, they have what they call the One World Alliance, which is a bunch of airlines that operate together and do code share. That way, you know, you can check in your bag with one airline and it'll get transferred to the other one. It ends up where you're going. And you get the points for the... Right. The, yeah. So a lot of airlines do this. And in this particular instance... This wasn't two, you know, what you would think of as major airlines. This was what's referred to as a regional airline, Colgan Airlines, who was operating a flight for Continental Airlines. So the plane has the Continental logo on it. The plane says Continental Connection. But in reality, it's operated by an airline called Colgan Airlines. Hmm. Um, This is something common. If you fly American Airlines, you've probably flown an American Eagle plane before. That's the same thing, where it's not the big airline, they don't want to run these smaller flights. They subcontract it to smaller airlines to run it for them. This is something I think a lot of people don't think about. So if you ever, what they call a regional jet, like one of the smaller planes with like propellers or, you know, it's, it's really small on the inside, you're probably on a regional uh, airline and not on the big airline itself. Hmm. So this particular flight, like I said, it was Colgan Airlines Flight 3407. It was marketed as Continental Connection, uh, and it was flying from Newark, New Jersey to Buffalo, New York on February 12, 2009 in a uh, Bombardier Dash 8 Q400. So I'm not quite sure. <laughs> some people say Bombardier. Some people say Bombardier because it's a French word. I'm going to stick with Bombardier. Uh, I'm just okay. saying that right now. 
It's good with me. So the flight was crewed by a 47-year-old Captain Marvin Renslow, who had been with the airline since 2005 and had 3,379 hours of flight time with 111 hours as captain on a Q400. The first officer was 24-year-old Rebecca Lynn Shaw, who was hired in 2008 and had 2,244 hours of flight time, 774 of which were in turbine aircraft, including the Q400. Uh, There were two flight attendants, and this particular Dash 8 was manufactured in 2008, so it was a little over a year old, or maybe about a year old. One more side note here. A lot of pilots and flight crew start out with these regional airlines, and then, you know, as they gain hours, then they move up. The sports analogy I would give is... It's like starting out in the minor leagues, you know, you start off with uh, smaller yeah. planes and then you eventually, as you gain experience, you work your way up. Yeah. They're like, man, they did a really good job at the, what was it? Conkle? Colgan. Airlines? Colgan, Colgan <laughs> Airlines. Like, let's move up to the big leagues. Right. Once they get enough hours and they have enough experience. Yeah. They typically move up. I don't think we've, we've had an incident with this particular kind of plane before this uh, Dash 8 Q400. So the Dash 8 is a high-wing twin turboprop plane. So it's unlike low-wing jet engines of all our other incidents. So normally you think about like when you get on a plane and you look out the window, you can see that the, the wing is kind of below you, right? Like at the floor level and the engines are mounted under that. Since this is a high-wing twin turboprop, the wings are actually mounted like on top of the plane. And if you were to look out, you, you know, you'd have to look up to see the wing and it's got two hmm. propellers, you know, one on each side. I never thought about that. Yeah, like it's a, where the wing is. Makes a big difference. There's a lot of little things, you know, that, that come to planes that maybe you don't think about until you know, someone <laughs> points it out. Like, why is the wing low on this plane? Why is the wing high on this plane? Why are the engines mounted here? Why is there one engine on the back? We're, I'm sure eventually we're going to cover yeah. all of these different <laughs> permutations. Right now, we're, we're introducing the concept of a high-wing turboprop plane. Okay. You might get into this later, but what is the advantage or disadvantage of the wings being higher or lower? So in this particular case, having higher wings gives better clearance for the propellers. Like if they put the wings low, the propellers might hit the ground. Yeah, yeah. You see what I'm saying? Because the propellers are mounted under the wing and it's not just a jet engine. So when you have a a low wing with uh, jet engines mounted under it, you run into some issues. Like you could have debris sucked up into the engine. If you ever pay attention, sometimes you'll see that some engines, instead of being a perfect circle, they're flat on the bottom to try to give them a little more clearance off the ground. Yeah, yeah. There's there's just a lot of little issues like that. When you have uh, low engines as well, you cannot land like on a gravel runway or like a, a, a less improved runway because stuff might get sucked in. Gotcha. So these are up high. Don't have to worry about it. Military cargo planes lots of times use high wings as well. That way they can uh, land in, you know, a little more rough terrain. Gotcha. So um, this is, of course, a huge oversimplification. There's a lot of uh, detail that goes into this, but that'll serve us for now. Okay. Like like I said, the the wings are high. It's got two propellers, one on each side of the plane, and uh, they're connected to the engines with the landing gear below and the wings, you know, above. And it sits only a few feet above the ground. The plane itself sits only a few feet above the ground. It's not super high. Uh, The plane's, you know, smaller than typical planes. This Q400 could sit between uh, 70, 78 passengers. Uh, It's about 108 feet in length, 27 and a half feet tall, and it's about nine feet wide with a wingspan about 93 feet. So I know I just threw a lot of numbers out, so I'm going to give you a little bit of reference. Wait, nine feet wide? Uh, just the cabin, not counting. Oh, you know, oh I was the, like, oh my wings. God. <laughs> the, the wingspan is uh, 93 feet. Okay. I was going to say, I was like, nine feet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's <laughs> just the, the cabin. So like I said, this, this plane is about 108 feet long. Uh, for reference, a 737 can be up to about 138 feet long. Uh, this plane has about 27 feet tall. A 737 is about 41 feet tall. So it's much smaller. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the reason regional airlines will fly a turboprop plane like this is it's more efficient, it's cost effective for short distances, and they have shorter takeoff and landing requirements. It's cheaper to operate. But of course, the downside is it has a lower cruising speed and altitude and shorter range. But that's kind of why they fill this need for the bigger airlines. You know, the bigger airline doesn't want to fly these short routes. So that's where an airline like Colgan comes in. They have these planes that are more suited for these short routes. Yeah. So they're just filling a need for the bigger airlines. We're all looking for ways to save money, especially now. When's the last time you looked at how much you're spending every month on car insurance or on homeowner's insurance? Now's the time to check out Gabby and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, Travelers. You just link your current insurance account, and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. I checked it out myself, went to the website. You connect your existing account. It reads all the information and shows you what exactly the same kind of coverage with another provider is. It just takes a couple of seconds. It's so fast. It's super easy. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average. If they can't find you savings like they did for me, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you already have the best rate out there. And they'll never sell your info, so no annoying spam or robocalls. It's totally free to check your rate. No obligation. It takes two minutes. Just go right now. Uh, see how much you can save on your current car and homeowner's insurance. Go to gabby.com slash blackboxdown. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash blackboxdown. Gabby.com slash blackboxdown. Super easy, super quick. Trust me, it was awesome. I had such an easy time doing it. You should check it out. Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. Uh, you can get treated from home. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. But now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. They offer generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but never at this price. Uh, so remember, prevention is the key. Keeps treatments can take four to six months or more to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash blackboxdown to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash blackboxdown. Again, keeps.com slash blackboxdown. Do something uh, about the hair while you still have it. Okay, so this flight departed from Newark about two hours behind schedule at 9.18 p.m. And the flight time was estimated to be about 53 minutes. Not a long flight. Like, you know, we live here in Austin. This would be like us flying to Dallas or Houston, you know? It's like... Gotcha. Yeah, it's... It's, it's not a very long flight. Uh, this flight cruised at 16,000 feet, which, you know, again, is, is pretty low. It's not like a typical cruising altitude, but it's a short flight. Like, again, using our analogy, when you fly to Houston and Dallas, you stay pretty low. You don't get very high because you're not going that far. Yeah. And it was an uneventful flight uh, up until, you know, right at the end. So reading some of the, the transcripts from the cockpit voice recorder, it seems that First Officer Shaw was a little under the weather, but she wasn't quite ready to call in sick yet. Uh, She said, I'm going to read a a quote here from the cockpit voice recorder. If I call in sick now, I've got to put myself in a hotel until I feel better. We'll see how it feels flying. If the pressure's just too much, I could always call in tomorrow. At least I'm in a hotel on the company's buck, but we'll see. I'm pretty tough. Mm. Yeah, so she was feeling not not great. You know, it's it's not a good sign. But she said she probably still felt okay to fly. I've gone to work like that where I'm like, ugh, I don't feel good, but I can get through it. Mm Mm-hmm. So at about 9.53 p.m., the crew started preparing for the approach. A few minutes later, First Officer Shaw made a comment saying that it might be better on her ears if they start going down sooner, to which the captain instructed her to get discretion to 12,000 feet. Cleveland Center cleared the flight down to 11,000, and at 10.05 p.m., Buffalo Control cleared the flight down to 6,000 feet. 
The NTSB notes at this point, sterile cockpit rules are now required to be observed by the flight crew. Sterile cockpit rule? Like, is it not always sterile? So, good question. The sterile cockpit rule, it's an FAA regulation that states that during critical phases of flight, which is normally below 10,000 feet, only activities required for safe operation may be carried out and non-essential activities are forbidden. And this includes non-essential communication between the flight crew. This rule was imposed by the FAA in 1981 after reviewing accidents that were caused by crew being distracted during critical phases of flight. Uh, and it's uh, the pilot in command's duty to not allow non-essential conversations or activities to take place. So basically, you know, during the most critical times of flight, when they're below 10,000 feet, they can only talk about what is essential to the safe operation of the plane. Gotcha. The, the crew cannot be distracted. They shouldn't be talking about anything else. No, no, like stewardess coming in and being like, there's a lady back here who won't put her clothes on. You know, yeah, <laughs> I'm curious like to hear your story, but no, nothing no. like that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they have to, they have to be focused on uh, their task at hand. So the flight was clear to 5,000 feet and then to 4,000 feet, you know, they're coming in to, to land. Captain Renslow asks Shaw about her ears, uh, which she said were stuffy and popping. About a minute later, First Officer Shaw asked Captain Renslow if ice was present on his side of the windshield, uh, and he asked the same question, to which she responded, lots of ice. The NTSB report then notes that the crew began to talk about non-essential flight duties. The crew carried on a conversation about their previous experience dealing with ice in flight. Hmm. But yeah. the ice isn't really important, right? It's not like, well, this is a bad sign because of the ice. Well, it's I mean, just... the, the captain does say it's the most ice he's seen on the leading edge. Uh, so, I mean, they're thinking about it. You know, planes should have de-icing systems to take care of it. But, you know, they, they're keeping an eye on it at this point. At 10, 12 p.m., the crew was cleared to 2,300 feet. And while they were going through their flight duties, they still carried on non-essential conversations. After a couple minutes and, you know, heating directions from the ATC, the plane was at 2,300 feet, going about 180 knots. And uh, shortly after this, they extend their flaps to five degrees. You know, you have to extend their flaps when they're coming in for a landing, when they're slowing mm -hmm. down. ATC cleared the flight to turn left to a heading of 260 and to maintain 2,300 feet until established on the localizer for ILS approach to runway 23. And we talked about ILS. You know, they're going to use their instruments for a landing on runway 23. Okay. At less than three miles from the outer marker, the captain began to slow the aircraft for landing speed. So the outer marker, it's a marker beacon for that ILS system, which we've talked about before. And it's ILS stands for instrument landing system. And uh, it helps pilots and helps planes come in, you know, make sure they're at the right glide slope and you know, at the exact right angle to come in for their landing. So this outer marker is located between four and seven nautical miles away from, you know, the, the edge of the runway. So is this like the last little check where it's like, okay, coming in, make sure you're good to go. Yeah, it's not necessarily the last check, but it's the beginning of that. You know, they're on the okay. ILS making sure they're lined up exactly the way they're supposed to be going. So the engine power levers were set to 42 degrees. Uh, and flight idle in this plane is 35 degrees. So it's not, it's not quite all the way to idle. You know, they're, they're, it's very low power for the engines at this point. Mm -hmm. At okay. 1016, you know, they lower the landing gear and they were at a speed of about 145 knots. Uh, after this, the autopilot had also applied nose-up pitch trim and an ice detection message had appeared on the engine display in the cockpit. So mm -hmm. they're slowing down, autopilot is bringing the nose up a little bit and they get a message about ice is detected. Ice detected where? So I'm, I'm not sure exactly where. Um, it, it can vary definitely on the leading edge of the wing. Uh, mm -hmm. Beyond that, I'm not entirely certain. It could be also somewhere uh, on the nose and maybe somewhere around the engines too. But I can't say for certain. But there's a warning sign for it. So Well, they got a message just that ice was detected. Okay. So at this time, the captain, Captain Renslow, calls for 15 degrees of flaps. And the flight data recorder shows that the flaps moved to 10 degrees and the plane slowed to 135 knots. 
A few seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder recorded a similar sound to a stick shaker, which warns the crew of an impending stall. And it also recorded a similar sound to the autopilot disconnect horn, which repeated throughout to the end of the recording. So have we talked about the stick shaker yet? I don't know if we have. Can I take a guess? Sure. The stick shaker is like a thing that keeps the uh, yoke from like vibrating too much. Um, it's actually the opposite. What I would say is the stick shaker is is an alert for the pilots. So if the plane detects that it's going too slow and it's going to stall, it shakes the column. That way oh. they know that it's they're like, about to stall. It's like a warning. You know, since they're supposed to have their hands yeah. on it, it starts shaking like, oh, we're going to stall. Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's cool. Yeah, it's 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 a very important piece of equipment. It's a very important safety measure. Like tactile warning. Mm-hmm. So the flight data recorder shows that when the autopilot disconnected, the plane was at a speed of 131 knots. Uh, at 10.16, the control column moved aft and the engine power levers were advanced to 70 degrees with the cockpit voice recorder recording the sounds of increased engine power. So, you know, they're increasing power and pulling back on the control column at this point. Because they don't want to stall. Right. The flight data recorder shows that while engine power was increasing, the airplane pitched up, rolled to the left 45 degrees, and then rolled to the right as flaps were set to zero degrees. The control stick was then pushed nose down so the angle of attack on the wings is reduced so the plane can gain speed. Uh, in a stall, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to point the nose down after giving throttle so you can gain speed to avoid the stall. Mm-hmm. First Officer Shaw then informs Captain Renslow that she set the flaps to zero. At this time, the speed of the airplane was about 100 knots. Flight data recorder shows that the roll angle reached 105 degrees right wing down before the plane started to roll back to the left. The plane reached a left roll angle of 35 degrees. At this point, Shaw asks Renslow if she should put the gear up, to which he replies, gear up. The airplane pitches 25 degrees down and rolls right 100 degrees and enters a steep descent. At this point, they are like, something's wrong right now? They're extremely out of control. I mean, think about it. If it's rolling 105 degrees right wing down, that's more than all the way to the right. Gotcha. Yeah, so they're like evasive, not evasive, but like maneuvers to like settle and clear and like get back on track they're basically out of control they should never be rolling like that and they're rolling you know from extreme right to extreme left the plane like i said it's pitched 25 degrees down it's i mean (laughs) this is terrible and uh, i I can't imagine what it's like to be in the plane at this point just before 10 17 p.m the captain states we're down and a sound of a thump is recorded on the cvr on the cockpit voice recorder uh, and then the recording stops two seconds later so during these rolls and pitches, it's estimated that the occupants experience two Gs of force, which is similar to like that Gravitron ride at carnivals. Have you ever ridden uh-huh, that? Uh-huh. So, I mean, that's bad. The plane crashed about five miles from the end of the runway into a house. Oh. The aircraft burst into flames as the fuel tanks ruptured on impact and destroyed the house of Douglas and Karen Wylinski. All 49 people on the plane died, along with uh, the homeowner, Douglas Wylinski. Uh, his wife and daughter managed to escape the house, but uh, he perished because the plane hit his house. Oh, my God. So, wait, he said we're down? But like, not like we're down, we've landed, but like we're down as in we're going down. As in like, we're, we've crashed. You know, that was like, because they, they hit two seconds later. I think that was his realization that there was no saving this. Oh my God. So he, and then, but he died. That was yes. his last, his yeah. last words were, we're, we're down. down. Mm-hmm. So yeah, everyone on the plane and one person in the house perished. I mean, this was awful. So the NTSB begins their investigation on February 13th, which is the next day. Both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder were recovered uh, and analyzed in Washington, D.C. And it was actually a a very difficult crash for them to work because uh, the freezing temperatures had made everything ice over because there was a fire. So the fire department showed up with water to put the fire out. But, you know, because they used all this water and temperatures were below freezing, all that water froze on the crash site. So the NTSB had to bring out heaters to try to melt it all. Uh, Oh, man. Yeah, it was 
terrible. And it took several weeks for the human remains to be you know, removed and identified. The cockpit sustained the greatest impact force. The cabin was mostly destroyed by the fire and passengers in the rear section were actually still strapped into their seats. Oh, man. And it took several months. T- you Se- said to- several weeks. So it took several weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you imagine being in a neighborhood and then like there's just a crashed plane with like the the remains of of passengers like yeah. frozen for weeks? Yeah, imagine like if this was your next door neighbor. You know, this this, yeah. was, this was in a neighborhood. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's terrible. That's, oh my god! And uh, I saw an interesting footnote here. I guess apparently there were some uh, forensic anthropology graduate students from a local college who were actually enlisted to help sort through the wreckage to find human remains. Uh, just because I guess like they really needed extra help to try to and they, get through And everything. those are people who are who like know how to uncover remains? Oh my God. Right. It's like, I mean, it's something they're studying. So you know, they were able to, to assist in it. Oh man, I couldn't imagine. That sounds like the worst, I don't know, college credit possible. <laughs> well, you but, get I mean, extra, it's, it's, <laughs> extra it's, it's, credit. It's their, you know, it's their, uh, their, their field of study, you know, that it's, it's good experience for them, I guess. But man, yeah, that's, it's not something I would personally study. Yeah. So a few months earlier, three months earlier in December of 2008, the NTSB issued a safety bulletin about the danger of keeping the autopilot engaged during icing conditions because flying the plane manually would give the pilots the ability to detect changes in handling, which is a warning sign of ice accumulation. Um, however, the NTSB found no evidence of severe icing conditions, which would have required the pilots to fly manually. Uh, an autopilot was engaged until it automatically disconnected when the stall warning stick shaker activated. Hmm. So it turns out that Captain Renslow reacted incorrectly to the stick shaker warning. Uh, if you listen to what I had said initially, when that warning went off, he pulled back on the controls. To go up. Right, to go up. Yeah, so that would slow you down. Exactly. So when he did that, when he pulled back, the stick pusher activated. So the stick pusher is a device that's installed in some aircraft to stop you from entering a stall. So it pushes the elevator control system down when that angle of attack reaches a predetermined value, and it stops when the angle of attack is okay. So when the stick pusher activated, Captain Renslow again acted incorrectly by pulling back again, causing the plane to stall and crash. So Hmm. the, the stick shaker shakes to let them know that they're probably about to stall. And then the stick pusher activates to try to nose down to prevent the stall. But the captain pulled back. He fought the safety systems. That's so, huh. And so, and, and you can always override the safety systems manually, right? Right. I mean, I think ultimately it's a question of do you trust the automated systems or do you trust the human flying the plane more? And yeah. I think, you know, typically there's, there, there's a lot of thought that goes into this. We're actually going to, in an upcoming episode, we're going to talk kind of extensively about this philosophy. So I don't want to get into it too deeply this time, uh, mm-hmm. but I want, you to, I want you to think about that a little bit. You know, do you trust an autopilot or do you trust a human pilot more? So, I mean, if you think about it here recently, even um, the Boeing 737 Maxes that were in the news a couple of years ago, you know, those were crashing because of faulty readings from an automated system and the pilots trying to wrestle with that automated system. Wait, so they were fighting against the automated system, which was trying to crash them, essentially? Right. It was getting bad readings oh. and was, you know, reacting. And so the pilots were, were having to fight it. And that's a whole other thing. I mean, that system didn't, the pilots didn't necessarily know that it existed. And, and honestly... This is how the machines will win. This, this, <laughs> it, it's true. <laughs> this is how... In, in, in. In the in the robot apocalypse, the, they will they will take over our planes. I, I don't want to get into too much of a tangent here, uh-huh. uh, but this actually ties into a question you asked me earlier. We're, now we're going to talk about the seven thirty seven Max for just a moment. 
this automated system that existed on the 737 MAX that was causing the crashes, that automated system existed because this 737 MAX was a redesigned 737. They had put bigger engines on the plane, which had changed the way that it handles. And these bigger engines are under the wing and were causing a, a weird imbalance in the plane. So this automated system existed to try to balance the plane so that it flew more like the old 737 so that the pilots didn't need to be retrained. Gotcha. This goes back to big engines, under a wing. It's all kind of connected in the end. Yeah. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Okay. The last thing we talked about, Captain Renslow kept pulling back on the stick. So Bill Voss, who's president of the Flight Safety Foundation, said that it sounded like the plane was in a deep stall situation. A deep stall is a dangerous type of stall that affects certain aircraft designs, and it's mostly ones with a T-tail configuration where the horizontal stabilizer is at the top of the tail rather than the bottom. And uh, this is another one of those little details I think maybe most people don't think about. Maybe you've never even looked at. But sometimes that horizontal stabilizer at the back of the plane, sometimes it's at the top of the vertical stabilizer, and sometimes it's at the bottom. In this particular plane, it was at the top. That's why they call it a T-tail, because uh, it looks like the letter T. I don't even know what the vertical stabilizer is. The vertical stabilizer, so. you would probably call it the rudder, or like the tail fin that sticks straight up on the plane. Oh, oh, that. Okay. Yeah, that's the vertical stabilizer. And the horizontal stabilizer, it doesn't run up and down. It runs left to right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes the the one that runs left to right is at the top of the tail, and sometimes it's at the bottom of the tail. That that's why they call it a T tail because the horizontal stabilizer is at the top of the vertical stabilizer, and it looks like a letter T. So when a plane goes far enough into a stall, the wings will block the air from getting to the horizontal stabilizer on the tail, and it makes it basically impossible to get out of the stall. So basically, they were stalling, and the angle they were at, the wings were blocking the airflow from even getting to the horizontal stabilizer. So that caused them to enter this deep stall. That was a factor of just like the right angle and the right speed and then... I would say the wrong angle and the wrong speed, but yeah, I think the, well, <laughs> the, the, the sentiment is there. Yeah. So on May 11th, 2009, some information was released about Captain Renslow's training record. Uh, according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, before Renslow joined Colgan, he had failed three check rides, and some people close to the investigation suggested that he might not have been adequately trained to respond to the emergency that led to this fatal accident. Oh. Another article from the New York Post said Renslow had failed five tests in his past and alleged that his conversations with Shaw were flirtatious. But regardless if oh. they were flirtatious or not, at this point, they definitely violated sterile cockpit rules. Because they shouldn't have been talking at all. And they were like, oh, it's looking icy tonight. Right. No. And then the, the first officer was talking about her ears. So the NTSB report addresses these failed tests as well. Uh, his first failed test was his instrument check ride when he had only 125 hours of flight time. And not a significant failure. Not uncommon for pilots to fail this test. He passed it on his second try. In May of 2002, he failed his commercial single-engine land certificate. Uh, the tasks he was disapproved of were takeoffs, landings, go-arounds, and performance maneuvers that include skillful control of altitude, heading, bank angle, and airspeed. That's a lot. Yeah, but he passed this on his second attempt five weeks later, you know? Okay. He then failed his commercial multi-engine land certificate for similar reasons. It was clear to the NTSB at this point he had a hard time improving his control of aircraft. So this is that's not normal to like fail that many tests. I, I can't speak to that, but I can say in the NTSB's opinion, he had a hard time improving his uh, control of the aircraft. And they're the professionals, not me. So I'll, I'll defer to their opinion on that. Yeah. Uh, Renslow attended the Gulfstream Training Academy from August of 2004 and April to 2005, where he was graded unsatisfactory in approach to stall landing configuration which is the situation that happened on this crash. Mm. Uh, he continued to have problems with maneuvers and aircraft control and had to be retested after additional training. 
His training records showed his flying skills needed improvement, but he met the minimum requirements and began flying as a fully qualified first officer. When he joined Colgan, he was asked if he had any failed check rides, to which he responded yes, but only disclosed his instrument check ride and not his commercial check ride failures. Oh. Yeah, so he, he was kind of hiding some of his failed tests. That, I mean, that's got to be, I mean, he lied about his history. That's right. like lying on your resume, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's exactly it. And in this case, you know, your resume is vitally important because it goes to the safety of everyone that you're you're transporting. The vice president of administration stated that if they had known that he would have been dismissed from the company. So maybe he wasn't totally competent. He might have just been kind of scraping by as a pilot. You know, there's definitely some questions there. Mm. Uh, Investigators also examined the possibility of crew fatigue. You know, Captain Renslow had been at the Newark airport overnight before this flight, and Shaw had commuted from Seattle to Newark via Memphis on an overnight flight. Because of this, the FAA issued a call to action for improvements in the practices of regional carriers. The NTSB report details that Shaw had jump-seated on a cargo plane from Seattle to Memphis on the night of February 11th, where she's reported to have only gotten 90 minutes of sleep. Then she flew from Memphis to Newark early on the morning of the 12th. That flight lasted a little over two hours, and she was reported to have slept the whole time. She's probably also on cold medicine or something. Maybe. I don't I, I don't know. Uh, you know. I don't think the report says that, but it's possible. That's, you know, that's speculation. Yeah. Uh, the NTSB report says that during the 24 hours that preceded the incident, Shaw was reported to have slept for five and a half hours in the crew room at Newark, in addition to the three and a half hours she got on the flights, and her quality of sleep would have been diminished because of this. So it's not known how well rested she could have been. I know if I had done that, I would not have been well rested at all. Yeah, you would have been tired. At least she got some sleep as long as she was going off of nothing. But yeah, that's not good sleep, though, you know? Yeah. In addition to this, the report says that Renslow would have been awake for at least 15 hours prior to this flight and said that the accident occurred during his normal sleep time. According to the Uh, report, the captain had experienced chronic sleep loss, and both he and First Officer Shaw experienced interrupted poor quality sleep during the 24 hours before the accident. So it's very possible fatigue was a contributing factor in this crash. The NTSB final report drew 46 conclusions about the crash, but we're just going to kind of go through some of the important ones. Uh, Both the flight crew and the airplane were deemed to be properly certified and qualified with federal regulations. So it was nothing to do with the the plane. The plane was fine. No mechanical problems. What about the ice? Did the ice have anything to do with it? So, I mean, not directly. You can you can stall easier if there's icing conditions. Uh, The plane does have anti-icing systems. So yeah. and then those were working properly, and uh, so they just need to be aware of that and maybe maintain a little higher airspeed. But in this particular incident, uh, it did not directly contribute. Nothing out of the ordinary that should have led to a crash. Correct. There, it just might have, like, yeah, the same way, like, oh, it might have been a little windier. Right. It's like the amount of ice was within the operating threshold that the plane should have been able to handle. The captain's inappropriate control inputs in response to the stick shaker caused the airplane's wings to stall. So again, it was him pulling back that caused this. Twice. Right. The captain's response to the stick shaker activation should have been automatic, but his improper flight control inputs were inconsistent with his training and were instead consistent with startle and confusion. Mm. The captain did not recognize the stick pusher's action to decrease the angle of attack as a proper step in a stall recovery, and his improper flight control inputs exacerbated the situation. The first officer retracting the flaps and suggesting to raise the gear were inconsistent with company stall recovery procedures and training. She should not have retracted the flaps. She shouldn't? Okay. Yeah, we've talked about this. Like, the the flaps are there to try to help provide more lift at low speeds. Gotcha. I I don't know what the exact... I'm I'm not... Again, I'm not a pilot. I don't know the exact procedure. Pulling the gear up probably would have helped, but 
I'm sure there were a million other things that there, you know, like we've talked about before, there's checklists. I'm sure there were other things that should have been done. Right. So, and that was a mistake that um, the first officer made. Um, right. But she announced it and the captain didn't correct her. Okay. So they were both kind of making some mistakes. Right. Uh, monitoring errors made by the flight crew demonstrate the continuing need for specific pilot training on active monitoring skills. Because of the continuing number of accidents involving a breakdown of sterile cockpit discipline, collaborative action by the Federal Aviation Administration and the aviation industry to promptly address this issue is warranted. The pilot's performance was likely impaired because of fatigue, but the extent of their impairment and the degree to which it contributed to the performance deficiencies that occurred during the flight cannot be conclusively determined. So again, they were likely impaired because of they were tired, but there's no way to measure that. You know, yeah, it's not like they fell asleep. Right, exactly. The first officer's illness symptoms did not likely affect her performance directly during the flight. So she was sick, but not to the point where it was detrimental. Hmm. The NTSB determined the probable cause of this accident was the captain's inappropriate response to the activation of the stick shaker, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which the airplane did not recover. Contributing to the accident were the flight crew's failure to monitor airspeed in relation to the rising position of the low-speed queue, the flight crew's failure to adhere to sterile cockpit procedures, the captain's failure to effectively manage the flight, and Colgan Air's inadequate procedures for airspeed selection and management during approaches in icing conditions. Hmm. So after the crash, Colgan Air set up a phone number for families and friends of those affected to call for support or assistance. Uh, the American Red Cross opened up centers where family members could receive support from mental health care workers. And the U.S. House of Representatives held a moment of silence. Um, the ice hockey team there in Buffalo, the Buffalo Sabres, held a moment of silence uh, before their next game. The University of Buffalo held a remembrance service, and the basketball team wore a band with a flight number on it for the remainder of the season. And on March 4th, New York Governor David Patterson proposed a scholarship to benefit the children and financial dependents of the crash victims. Man. Uh, the FAA has implemented several rule changes as a result of this accident. Uh, these changes address fatigue that comes with commuting and implementing practices that reduce fatigue, uh, like using better scheduling practices, developing proper rest facilities for pilots. Uh, and another change is better oversight and validation of training records and better training standards in stalls and other maneuvers. So this last little bit I talked about is kind of the core of what this podcast is about, right? We go through and we talk about all of these things that went wrong and then what changes, what happens to try to yeah. stop these things in the future. And, you know, this fatigue, this issue of commuting has been kind of a, a problem for a while. And it's something, you know, I think that continues to be a problem, but they're, they're trying to address. Uh, and there's, there's one other note I wanted to point out here that I found while we were looking all this stuff up about this incident. You know, like I said, this incident happened in 2009, February 2009, and it's the most recent aviation incident resulting in mass casualties involving a U.S.-based airline. So it's been hmm. a little over 11 years. There have been some other incidents. You know, was it two years ago? Southwest had that incident where um, the engine exploded, basically, and sent shrapnel into the cabin. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I believe one person uh, perished from that. So there have been some other incidents, but this is the most recent mass casualty uh, incident, gotcha. which just goes to show, um, you know, overall how safe flying really is. Personally, I'm going to editorialize. I'm going to give my opinion here. Uh -huh. I try to avoid regional airlines whenever I can when I'm flying. I'm, I'm just not as comfortable uh, on those planes as I am on a big um, main airline. Hmm. So That's interesting. I, my mom has always been like, I don't like those little airplanes. I just, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't get on those little airplanes. And I'm like, mom, it's fine. It's an airplane. But that's interesting to hear from you. They have a slightly worse track record than the big, yeah. <laughs> than, you know, the big airlines. Um, they, there's a lot of fucked up stuff that goes on with those regional airlines. They're put in an almost unwinnable position. Like they have to be on time for their takeoff. Usually, depending on the contract, I should say, usually they have to be on time for their takeoff and uh, landing or they don't get paid for their flight from the big airline. Oh. They have a lot of pressure 
to get things done on time. And that can result in, you know, maybe trying to cut corners to get things done quickly. Yeah. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that always happens. I'm just saying like, that's something that I think about a lot. I have, I have a question. Mm-hmm. How many flight hours did the captain have? The captain had 3,379 hours of flight time uh, with 111 hours as a captain on this particular kind of plane. Okay, so that's not that much, right? Because we've had right, we've had some captains that have had like tens 15, of thousands, thousand. right? Yeah, so he's relatively new. So that, that's it's it's hard when you hear a number. Sometimes it's easy to be like, well, that seems like a lot. That's more. I mean, I don't know how many fl- hours of flight I have, but you know, like, yeah, he was still pretty new. Right, exactly. That goes into what I was talking about earlier about how a lot of pilots start out their careers on these regional airlines. And then as they get experience, they move over to the bigger airlines. Yeah. As far as like the victims or even like the people in the neighborhood, if they wanted to sue or or some sort of financial compensation, who would they, is it the airline? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure all these contracts are written out. I don't don't know the specifics. It would definitely be Colgan Airlines, maybe Continental since they were, you know, partnered on this doing the code share. I can't say for certain. If the pilot, say the pilot has a family, right? It crashed because of an error, errors that he made. Is his family still, do they get compensation? Like, can they Man. sue the job because... I have no idea. That's a, that's actually a really interesting question. We should find a lawyer <laughs> and ask them. That's, a, <laughs> that's not something that I, I've typically thought about, I don't think. I, I never think about the litigation side of these things. I'm always more interested in the process, you know? Yeah, I'm just like, because I could also see that, the like, say, if, if he's married, his wife could be like, well, they forced him to work without... You know, he, he he hadn't slept and he was working and not properly trained. That's all the airline's fault. I don't know. Right. I mean, but in their defense, they would say that he lied about his experience. That's true. And he hid the fact that he had failed some tests. So it's yeah, it's faceted. You know, it's nuanced. There's no easy answer yeah, yeah. to that. But uh, that's uh, that's it. That's uh, Black Box Down Episode 11. Uh, just want to remind everyone, if you like this podcast, uh, make sure you give us a rating. Give us uh, five stars or ten stars, whatever the maximum number of stars are. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. Follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Yeah, share this f- episode with a friend. Oh yeah, definitely. I forgot that. That's the most important part. Share, share yeah. it with a friend. 